Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, good morning. I'm Rich Schmidt. Uh, I'm here with Kathleen Wilcox. It's December 23rd, 2020. We're on Zoom today. Uh, Lily Hanridge, Megan Stanick, and Sophia Zelinsky are all here as well, students from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. Uh, December 23rd, 2020. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Let's start with the first question, the most important question, which is why wine? That is an excellent question. And it's kind of the eternal question. And honestly, wine pervaded my life the way that, you know, good books did. It was just an, an art. I mean, those three things have always been kind of a part of my family life growing up and um, my travel life. And I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. Um, I, you know, I first started writing um, for the high, for my high school newspaper. And as soon as I graduated from college, I got a, a job at the local newspaper. And this might sound, you know, completely idiotic, especially, you know, I'm 43, but to the younger generation, but it honestly didn't totally occur to me that I could write about whatever I felt like. So I knew I wanted to write. I loved, I love wine. I love books. I love art, but it didn't occur to me that I could write about any of those things. Um, I just, I just wanted to cover the world and what was happening and deliver news. And, you know, I really started um, just as a general beat reporter. Um, And then slowly over time, it dawned on me, um, you know, you can actually, narrow it down and write about things you're passionate about. And wine to me kind of encompasses everything that books and art encompass with the added help of also bringing in hard news, which I love. And I love writing about business. And I wrote um, for a business publication, various business publications for many, many, many years. And I love data crunching. And so wine gave me the ability to write about history, about culture, about people, tell their stories, and also the business of just the world and the way it works. So it didn't, it was not an overnight, it wasn't an overnight thing. I mean, I didn't, I've been writing professionally for, I guess, it's hard to believe, but 22 years. um, And it really wasn't until probably 15 years ago that I started really writing about wine. So let's talk about, you mentioned uh, your kind of the family life of books and art and wine. Tell us a little bit about your kind of upbringing, uh, ed- where, where you grew up and your education before you got into professional writing. Sure. So I was born in Michigan and I lived in Bloomfield Hills very happily for um, until I was seven. Um, it's a great place to raise a family and to be a kid. I mean, we had like a gang of kids who just played and we were outside all the time. It was wonderful. And, um, my dad, um, received an opportunity to work in Munich, Germany. 
So of course he hopped on it. Um, and my family moved there and we, I went to Munich international school, which was wonderful for me because, um, they did teach in English, but we of course learned German. Um, and I was one of two Americans in my class. So I had a very early on exposure to other cultures and people. And my parents are both just art and book nerds. I mean, my dad had me reading Jane Austen when I was in the third grade. I don't think I understood any of it, but you know, and my mom was taking me to museums again. I didn't always understand everything, but that was kind of our social life. And then on the weekends, of course, um, the social life in Germany is very much centered around the beer garden. Um, but my parents drank wine. So we would socialize at the beer garden with other families, but you know, they would drink wine and, and beer. And in Europe, this is not an unfamiliar story. Um, the attitude towards alcohol is very different. And, um, you know, I was tasting beer and wine from childhood and it was never something that seemed scary or forbidden. Um, and I was encouraged to ask questions and talk about it. And um, it also really pervaded every part of the culture. Um, and it wasn't unhealthy. Like, you know, sometimes um, I went to Providence College and I, you know, it was a great school, but the alcohol, um, the culture of alcohol there I would say was um, typical for the time, um, you know, the nineties, it was, it wasn't particularly healthy. I mean, it, it was just drink to get drunk, which, um, you know, probably isn't for the best for, you know, multiple reasons. <laughs> so that, um, you know, I always, I always was interested in more than just the buzz, I guess. So you talked about always wanting to be a journalist. Do you have a, a memory of when that first idea kind of first crystallized in your head? And, 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 and you mentioned sort of the early path. Was it something that you set out to do from, from high school on? Like, was it the only thing you really wanted to do? Yeah. I mean, once you get over the dream of, you know, flying planes or, or you know, the typical childhood stuff, I always, I grew up um, reading newspapers and um, I just loved it. I loved the idea of telling and not always, I mean, I, I, I always read obviously the big news and the polit political stuff, but what attracted me was the stories of the people who were more anonymous, who were a little bit less um, bold-faced figures, but they were really interesting. And that, I loved that. And I loved I think that my one regret in my career is that I didn't stay at my local newspaper for longer. Um, I was kind of, you know, lured to New York City by the siren song of just, you know, the big city, basically. All my friends were there. It was cool. Um, this was, you know, the, two, the early 2000s when everything seemed kind of possible and it was very, um, the idea of living in New York City was very cool to me. Um, but really the craft of journalism, if I have any advice for students who want to write is really write for a local newspaper if you can. I mean, I made, you know, very little money. I made like $9 an hour. I was living at home, which also I was like, okay, time to go. Um, but you know, it, 
it really teaches you the craft and it also, and it, it shows you how important local news is. I mean, I would spend um, at least two nights a week at board meetings and that sounds like a nightmare to a lot of people, but I loved it. It was fascinating. I loved learning about, you know, all of the little inside baseball deals going on in city hall in my little town. It was really fascinating. Um, and again, I was able to cover some of the things that were more interesting to me, art exhibits, stuff like that. Whereas when I moved to the city, I worked for Thompson financial and I wrote really, I mean, it, it taught me how to crunch numbers, which was great, but I wrote about pension funds. I mean, that's not fun, you know, and I got paid a lot more, but still, I mean, journalism, journalists anywhere aren't exactly like bringing home, you know, the big bucks. So if you're not writing about something that you love, then, you know, why are you doing it? Well, that's a great segue because you mentioned it, it took you a while to realize you could write about your passions. So tell me about that process of, of finding out that you could write about your passions. And, and once you realized that, what were the steps you took toward securing a career writing about things you loved? Well, it was not um, there, you know, there's no magic bullet. And I will say that I had a great time um, writing for Thompson. The people were fantastic. And I stayed there longer than maybe I should have just because I was learning a lot. And I loved the people. Um, so I worked there for about four years. And then I just started freelancing. I started and honestly writing for free. I mean, it's, it's not good news. It's, you know, it's, that's the reality is when you're trying to break into a new beat, you often have to work for free for a little while. So I did that for a long time. And I, I kind of experimented with writing about different subjects. I wrote about music. I, I did book reviews. Um, and then over a number of years, and it took a long time. And I, you know, I moved around, I worked for um, another advertising company. And then finally, I got a job um, as a night editor at the New York Sun, which was really fun. And that was general news, um, which was closer to what I wanted to do. But I was, I was editing, not writing. So um, again, it was just, it was a really long process. But I also pitched relentlessly. That is really, I mean, and still to this day, I mean, I'm 100% freelance and I am constantly pitching. I have a huge list of stories that I'm interested in writing, constantly up being updated. And um, it's just a matter of finding sometimes the right home for it. And a lot of times you have to just give up because no one will publish it. And unless you want to do it for free, which I still sometimes do if it's something I'm really passionate about. Um, but, you know. You, I, I'm an adult. I have two children. I'm married. Um, but you know, I've got to pay the bills. So it's like, I can't write for free all the time. So I'm curious in the, in the, as you were pitching relentlessly and, and freelancing, what were some of the early places that you published or some of the early places you worked for in the kind of around the wine arena that kind of got you started, uh, in writing and getting paid to write about wine? The game changer for me was Hudson Valley Wine Magazine. Um, they accepted just a cold pitch and I still write for them to this day. They are fabulous people. 
Um, they are very passionate about wine. They're very passionate about local um, community wine. Obviously, it's centered on the Hudson Valley in New York. And they are perfectionists. So I learned a lot from them. Um, they really taught me a lot. They, they recommended books for me to read. Um, they recommended podcasts to listen to. And, and that's, that is the thing that hooked me on wine to be honest. Um, and that is just to this day, I, I will be able to write about wine until I'm a hundred and still not know everything, not even close to it, but you learn more every day. And, you know, the more you read and the more you taste, um, and the more you travel, the more you learn, but it's, it's a constant learning process. So obviously you've written about a, a number of different topics that, as you mentioned, um, is wine your favorite thing to write about? Yes, hands down. Because, I mean, I love writing about food too, um, but I find that you can really get into the emotion and the ideology and the politics, which I find fascinating, and the philosophies of people through the choices they make in everything from farming to, um, you know, how they power their winery, um, what kind of rootstocks they choose to use, if they use pesticide, if they have, um, you know, bats or other beneficial pests in the vineyard to kill the bad pests. I mean, it's just fascinating. And, and also the travel aspect. I have been to some of the most interesting places and I never would have gone there if it hadn't been for the pursuit of just learning more about wine. So you, you mentioned the, the tasting part of that too. And I'm curious, that has, that's an interesting part of it. You're, you're, a, you're a journalist, but you also are expected to be an expert on the actual taste and, and the, the actual product itself. So I'm curious about how you went about learning wine from that perspective and, and uh, what were some of the early wines or regions that really appealed to you? The earliest wines that appealed to me um, were Rieslings from Germany, probably because a kid. And then I, you know, slowly but surely, I mean, I've read all of the, you know, typical books. Um, Jancis Robinson is a rock star. Um, I love Wine Folly. Um, and all of the kind of I, I have all of these books kind of lined up and some of them are encyclopedias, but you can just read 10 pages and, and you know, dive in that way um, and websites and um, newspapers. But really the, the biggest thing I, the biggest way that I've learned about wine is by just tasting through like say five Pinots made by five different producers in Oregon, for example, in the, you know, the Willamette Valley and, discovering and ideally the same year, you know, because that's what shows you the differences, the, the choices that, that people make in the fields and in the cellar, it just transforms and it's the same grape. And it, it still, it still amazes me how different they are. Would you, is there an underlying theme to your writing? Is there an under, underlying theme to the things you write about or the way you write about them? I'm definitely most interested in sustainable issues. And in recent years, um, especially with Black Lives Matters and with um, 
some of the things that have emerged about women in the industry. I think this is, that sustainability also includes the way you treat people. And that means everyone from the vineyard workers to the people who serve your wine. Um, and I've heard some, some really you know, scary stories and I have um, eight-year-old twins and I care deeply about you know, their, their health. And so I think a lot about the choices that we make um, when we farm in a certain way, um, using certain pesticides, I think it's toxic. I think it's, you know, I, I, I really think that we're harming people and we're harming the world and we're harming our communities um, by making some of these choices. So I, I do really feel strongly about um, sustainability in every sense. So while we're on that topic, I'm curious, obviously, there's been a lot of turmoil in, in the wine world in the last couple of years with, with some of the different various movements going on. Tell me about that from your perspective and what, what you've seen in the past and, and are things changing for the better? I really do think things are changing for the better. Um, I have never been um, harassed or, or anything like that. Um, I have seen it. Um, and I've seen it in very kind of micro ways, but that, that can be just as pervasive. Um, and I've spoken to a lot of people who have, who have been blackballed from publications, who have been just harassed out of their jobs, literally out of their jobs. And it's, it's horrific. Um, and I do think it's changing. And I know I'm speaking to you in Oregon, but I have to say that the, the region that I see is taking the, the strongest stance is um, Oregon. Um, and I think that especially also their response to the pandemic there, and, and this is their response to the pandemic, their response to the wildfires and their response to issues um, regarding women and equality just across the board. Um, you guys have more programs happening with, um, you know, I think I think I just read that the new um, bill that's making its way through Congress has, I think, one point five million dollars. that's going to go towards smoke research that will hopefully benefit um, Oregon. And there's so much to be done. Um, I know that the February meeting in Oregon, there's a big um, wine conference happening and all of these issues are being tackled. They're doing, they're dealing with smoke um, research, they're dealing with diversity issues, um, and they're dealing with smart ways of dealing with um, the second shutdown, which is just, it's really killing the small wineries that we love. The, the, it's like all of the best brands that we love are really the ones who are suffering. It's the household names that everyone knows, they're gonna be fine because everyone can buy them on Drizzly. But, people aren't necessarily going to buy, you know, the smaller brands in Oregon. It's just, and it's, it's awful. So while we're talking about Oregon, obviously we're, like you say, we're here in Oregon. So, so tell me about your, your perspectives on the Oregon industry, kind of your first impressions when you started to become aware of it and, and what you've seen change to what the industry looks like now. I have been consistently blown away. I think that it was, um, 2013, where they registered something like a doubling of um, vineyard acreage with 400 plus wineries um, 
you know, over a decade, which is amazing. And I think that everything about the industry, I mean, the people who founded it, you know, essentially in the 1960s were pioneers and they were, they, I mean, pardon my French, but they were badasses. You know, everyone said it couldn't be done. People said, you can't grow Pinot Noir there. You're not going to do it. Um, they, they were, you know, Davis renegades and they just went up and they said, we're going to do it. We're going to grow these crazy, difficult to grow grapes in a wet climate. And we're going to make delicious wine. And they have, and it's, I think it's the best wine in the U S across the board. I mean, there are wonderful, wonderful wines in Napa, Sonoma, the Finger Lakes, but consistently across the board, it's, it's just beautiful in the Willamette Valley, especially, but in other, you know, I've tried a lot of wines recently from the Rogue Valley and from other regions, and it is just amazing what's being done. What does the, what does the Oregon industry look like to you now? Obviously you're not inside, inside our bubble. So what, what does the industry look like to you now? And, and what do you, what, what do you see for it going forward? What are kind of the biggest changes or, or growths you've seen? And where do you see it going forward? I see people like, for example, and I, I may be mispronouncing her name, like Remy Drabkin, who is also, you know, sits on, I think the city council too. Um, she is pushing things forward um, in such an interesting way. And other people, there are so many other wineries like that, Bryn Mawr, um, Hayu, they're just doing so many interesting things in the vineyard with sustainability. Yamhill, I love the quality is super, super, super high. And yet they are, they're doing things in the old world way, but with a new world paradigm. So they, they're super progressive when it comes to social issues. A lot of them contribute a lot of, um, a lot of profits, especially in the last few years, um, to health issues and supporting their vineyard workers and making sure that people are really um, taken care of in the vineyard. And that's where I see, I see millennials and Gen Z being very, very interested in sustainability, in equality, in just a more just and hopeful world. And that's, I mean, Oregon's leading the way. And also they're leading the way in the US. I mean, I think Australia arguably is leading the way around the world just because they've dealt with wildfires for so many decades. Um, but they are really leading the way in, in terms of putting money where their mouth is, you know, really researching it. And again, there are, there are exceptions all over Napa um, you know, Frank family vineyards, they are doing so much for different workers um, and for different causes. Um, that's just one tiny example. But I would say that regionally across the board, it's, it's Oregon. They are just, they are so progressive and that's what the younger wine, wine drinkers are interested in. And they're also, while they have this kind of Burgundian style and they can also kind of go off and do these pet nats and some of the best gamets I've ever had. And, you know, they're growing Italian varietals. It's just amazing what's, what's going on. So I see um, the younger generation being very much attracted to that. And I think that 
after, you know, I think it was in 1979 where they kind of first started getting acclaim um, with some major competitions. So they, you know, Oregon has been garnering serious accolades for decades, but I think that the popular um, demand is, you know, following with the younger drinkers now. So that's, I mean, I think that the future is very, very positive. And the other thing is with climate change, there's more room in Oregon for climate change. Whereas some of the warmer climates, if it gets much hotter, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm also curious about, obviously you, you have a, a fairly large following. We're gonna, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious about from people who read you and people you interact with who are outside of Oregon, is there a general consensus out there about Oregon wine? Obviously, we're, it's, it's a fairly young industry here still, as you mentioned, and it's only been the last 20 or so years that it started to really grow into any kind of sizable industry. It's, we're, we're happy now people know that Oregon exists. That there's a place between Seattle and Los Angeles out here somewhere. Uh, but I'm curious, like, if, if what, what's the general consensus you hear from people you interact with and people who read you about Oregon and, and about Oregon wine? Is, is it similar to what you are, are saying from your own perspective? I would say yes. Um, people are very excited about the, you know, because it appeals to the wine snobs who love the high quality. It appeals to the younger generation who love the ideals. And I would add a third category of people who, you know, who are my contemporaries. I live in upstate New York. It's all about the outdoors. Um, that Those types of people are very, very interested in the outdoorsy aspect. And the thing that Oregon does so well that not every um, region does is you guys have all of these programs. You have these biking and, you know, biking and all kinds of things connected to, um, you know, your wine trails, which I, I see as a very strong positive. And also the foodie culture in Portland is huge. Um, and people, and people also, love the idea of the urban wineries. I mean, and this is just, th these are more my contemporaries and my friends than um, the, the wine geeks and the wine writers um, who, I mean, they've been all in on Oregon for years, honestly. It's, and we are also super excited to see what's happening with sparkling wine. I mean, that is really taking off as far as critical acclaim goes. I don't know, um, I haven't looked into the numbers. I don't know if um, you know the purchases are following, but people are super excited about what's happening with sparkling wine. So as, as, you, as you got started in writing, you, you mentioned the, the Hudson Valley Wine Magazine. It's kind of your first, your first big break. Were there certain stories or, or certain topics in your kind of early writing or, or as you were getting into writing that, that stick with you? Are there certain things you're incredibly proud of or memorable, memorable events or stories for you as you were getting going? There are a few that I've written that have kind of stuck with me um, for whatever reason. Um, one that I, I wrote for um, the Hudson Valley Wine Magazine early on was about energy consumption. And it was just about greening the wineries. And as you know, in the Hudson Valley, um, and I would say in some areas of Oregon too, um, the weather can be very challenging. So if you're gonna focus on sustainability, you might not necessarily wanna focus on, um, you can't always go 100% organic biodynamic 
you, I mean, unless money is no object. And then in that case, of course you can, um, but you can go solar and you can do other things that um, are more ecologically responsible. If you do occasionally once a year have to spray for, you know, ideally, of course you wouldn't, but if you have to. Um, so that was really interesting. And I've, I've written a few pieces for um, Wine Searcher and um, 750 Daily and Wine Enthusiasts that have really stuck with me. I really, um, there was actually a piece for Wine Enthusiasts about this shift in Champagne in France. And I also spoke to the left coast. And um, basically the idea was someone found out that the Champagne maker um, in Champagne, France was using honey in their dosage. And the idea was that this was against the AOC regulations, which I, I understand from um, an intellectual standpoint, but if you think about it from a philosophical standpoint, it really makes no sense. I mean, basically they're saying they're, they have to ship in sugar from you know Africa, which is very far away, instead of using honey, which they make on the vineyard because they're beekeepers. And it's, it's totally nonsensical. And then I spoke to left coast and, and they're doing the same thing. Um, and it's just such a terrible, it's such a much more terroir driven, um, product arguably. Um, so I, I loved that aspect. And then I, I, um, also was really, um, you know, writing the piece wasn't, it wasn't fun, but I'm, I'm really glad I did for a wine searcher about Black Lives Matters and just how pathetic the numbers are in the wine industry. And I know it's changing, but that's across the board from winemakers to sommeliers to wine writers, um, that just the numbers aren't there and it doesn't even come close to reflecting the population and, or the desire um, you know, there are plenty of people who would love to work in wine who are people of color and they're just kind of, it's just, it's made to be more, much more difficult than it should be made to be. Um, and it's really wrong. Um, and, and then there were a few kind of geekier pieces that I did for 750 that were really fun and they stuck with me. Um, just because they were fun to research, basically the rise of rosé and um, hard seltzer, which, you know, I am not a fan. I, they're, hard seltzer is not my thing. Um, but it was interesting to kind of trace that arc and just see how it's growing and what, um, you know, where that could be going. And I'm hoping, you know, now there's a movement towards um, craft made hard seltzer Um and then there are a lot of people making like Piquette winemakers, um, which I think is is cool. And I hope that more of them do that just because it kind of capitalizes on that low ABV, um, lower calorie um, trend that some of the more health conscious and some of the younger consumers are interested in. You mentioned a lot of different publications there that you've written for. And obviously that's sort of, you mentioned start, kind of starting as a freelancer, starting by pitching everywhere. That's sort of the way it has to be now. There's not a lot of just, you know, writing for a single publication type jobs out there. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, at what point did you feel that you, this was, this was going to be a success? At what point did you feel like 
wine writing was something you you would be able to do sustainably for yourself and your family and you were going to be able to write a, enough and, and get paid enough to, to make it work i would say maybe four years ago is when it really kind of started coming together and also that um was when quite frankly the kids went to school because um i i have twins and it's like it's a big I didn't want to outsource um, parenting and I still don't. Um, but luckily, um, eight year olds understand when mom has to work, you know, but two year olds don't. So it's, it's very different. And I, now I know, and that's no judgment. I have, I mean, when I say I don't want to outsource parenting, I mean, first of all, sometimes I, I did. Um, and, you know, the kids went to daycare a few times a week for sure. And a lot of people don't have the option of, you know, so it's just, I personally, it was a personal choice. And I was, I was privileged to have the ability to do that, which is also something that I don't think is always um, recognized enough. So you have a, a book published, uh, Hudson Valley Wine. Tell us a little bit about that project, how it came to fruition and, and how it turned out. Well, I worked with Tessa Edick on it. And at that point, this was early on when um, my kids were very young. And I worked with Tessa kind of as a, as just a all hands on deck writer. And we worked on various writing projects and various publicity projects together. She runs a foundation called Farm On. And basically it's centered on getting younger people um, K through 12 into farming in the Hudson Valley. Um, and she was very flexible. Um, I was able to write when I could. Um, and that was often at night or on the weekends. Um, and we pitched the project together and we would just trade chapters back and forth. And it was really, um, it was really rewarding and it was, fun and it was collaborative. Um, but book publishing is, it's very challenging. It's almost like having a blog. I mean, you're either going to do, you're either, it's either going to take off and do really well, or it's going to be a real push. And this book was, I loved it. I'm glad I did it, but I don't know if I will do another one unless I'm sure that I have um, the bandwidth to really promote it. Cause that, that was something that I didn't really realize at that point that you just, it's basically a full-time job promoting the book. So, but it was, it was really interesting to write and it gave me a really new appreciation of the vast um, differences that of quality and that there can be within one region. And Wine in the Hudson Valley can be very good, um, but the terrain and the weather is very challenging. So it can be very difficult too. And they have bad, bad years, you know, where across the board, it's just very difficult. So obviously you, you talk to a lot of different people in the wine world uh, through your job. I'm curious about your sort of perspectives on the wine industry, sort of, we'll talk about the American wine industry. Um, the, the, the people involved, what, what, are, what are some of the kind of through lines you see uh, about who gets into the wine industry and, and, and why? Are, are, there, are there commonalities among the regions that, that are obvious to you? Yes, I would say that there are. And it took me by surprise. Um, 
I think that there is, and a lot of it's valid sometimes, as we discussed, there are all kinds of issues with um, equality um, across the board and access. However, I still, even though I grew up loving wine, had this idea that the wine industry was kind of elitist. Um, and I'm not saying that it can't be. I, I just haven't encountered it nearly as much as I thought I would. And I would say that across the board, commonalities that I find among people for the most part who are involved is extreme gregariousness. Even if they're slightly introverted or shy sometimes, they love talking to people. They love telling stories and they have a story. They have a vision and they have a philosophy. And that, and, and they love delicious things. I mean, you know, I have had some of the best meals of my life drinking with winemakers because they just want, they want the truffles. They want the, you know, the delicious cheeses and everything else because they value, I mean, they're Epicureans, you know, they really value flavor and taste and stories and history and fun. And there's also a lot of laughter. I mean, there's so much laughter in the wine industry and it's, it's really, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful industry to be a part of. You talked about story and, and obviously you're, you're a storyteller. We, we understand that we we try to be storytellers here as well. What are the stories? What, what about winemaker stories appeals to you or not, not just winemakers, wine industry stories. What are, what are the things you find that are the, 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 again, the kind of through lines, the kind of constants about a story that, that appeals to you and, and appeals to consumers? I think that, it, it usually is a story of passion and hard work. It's all of kind of, it's the classic stories, the classic parts of every classic story that you read growing up. It's like hard work rewards after a lot of hard work. There's always, there are always difficult things that happen because there, I mean, there's COVID sometimes. There also, there's war, there's depressions, there's prohibition sometimes. Um, there are all kinds of things that happen. There are bad harvests. There are storms that kill the vines and they feel like these kind of apocalyptic happenings, but winemakers and fires, I mean, think of the fires. But I couldn't believe when I was interviewing people for this horrible, after this horrible, um, you know, season of wildfires, how upbeat they were. I mean, they, there is so much hope and there is very little defeat. There's never, I never get a sense of despair or defeat. There's always, well, things will turn up next vintage will be great. I mean, it's just, it's incredible and it's inspiring. It's wonderful to be around such positive energy and it's across the board. And yes, there are definitely, I've had doom and gloom discussions too. Don't get me wrong. Um, but then there is always that kind of silver lining and that hope. 100% agreed from, from our end. That's, that's exactly how I would describe it too. And it's, and it's, it's intoxicating to be around it as a, as, a, as a person who's not in the industry. It's intoxicating to be around that kind of attitude, as you say. Uh, I want to talk about your, your stories for a minute. You talk about you have a, a big list of stories all the time and you're, and you're pitching constantly and you're writing constantly. 
for you personally, where do the story ideas come from mostly? Are they, are they mostly pitched to you? Are they mostly things you just sort of notice and think about? Where do the stories mostly come from? Well, um, I have gotten a lot of story ideas. I get story ideas randomly on social media. I'll see a post and it'll just get me thinking about something. Um, for example, that honey champagne story. I saw someone posted about the honey being used in the dosage. And I was like, that is fascinating. I wonder how many other winemakers do that. And then I kind of figured out the story from there. Um, and, you know, you'll see, and sometimes it'll be something weird. Like I'll be tasting a wine and um, I'll give it to family members, including my kids to smell. And they'll notice something and we'll start a conversation and that'll just get the wheels turning. I get ideas from the most random places. And I also get ideas from a lot of Zoom calls. You know, everyone now is doing a million and one Zoom tastings. And um, the winemaker will go off on a, you know, weird tangent about this one vintage or this one vineyard issue that they were having. And that will, that'll get me going. Um, and I, you know, it's exciting because then you just go down the rabbit hole and you start searching and you talk to a few other winemakers and then you realize, okay, there is a story here. And then that goes on the list. Do you, do you find yourself running into, a, uh, into people who don't want to speak on the record about things or who or about whom want to keep industry secrets or trade secrets? Or do you find the wine industry fairly forthcoming when you have ideas like this? I would say fairly forthcoming. If I know that something's really um, touchy, I'll let people know that they can speak off the record. Um, and I think people know that they can always ask to speak off the record. But usually people, and that's the thing that I find so interesting, is that people are so open. Even if what they're saying is really controversial, they don't care. They're just like, all right, well, this is what I think. <laughs> it's, it's great. You talked earlier about uh, the, some of the travels you've had, places you wouldn't have been able to go otherwise, or wouldn't have thought to go otherwise necessarily. Tell me about some of the some of those travels uh, outside of the U.S., especially uh, places you've gone and stories you've written, and and uh, what were some of the favorites to you? What were some of the standout memories for you for for those kind of travel stories? The one of the places that I never would have gone in a million years was um, North North. Eastern Spain, the region of Aragon. Um, and it was just, it was such a great trip. I was the only writer on the trip. It was all sommeliers. And so I was really like behind the, behind the game because, you know, they are just hardcore. They can go, they were like, you know, I was like, I'll have a cerveza. It was like midnight. They were drinking gin and tonics. And like, I was, you know, the loser just trying to keep up. But it was so fun. And um, it was such a blend of cultures there. Um, there's really a blend there of Islamic and Jewish and Christian. And I'd never seen anything like that, um, where you would go to a church and there would be kind of these Islamic um, style tiles. And it was also had once been a mosque or it was a church that turned into a mosque. It, it was just such a crossover. Um, and that that kind of played into the winemaking, too. The winemaking there is very old school. The vineyards are not neat and pretty. They're like hodgepodge, old gnarled vines. Nothing's in a row. It's a lot of it's done by hand. 
Um, and that was just, it was wonderful. And the people there couldn't have been kinder. They were wonderful hosts. Um, and the food was absolutely amazing. Um, and you know, these songs I'm still, I'm friends with, we have like a chat group and we check in with each other, you know, pretty frequently. And that's like the great thing about the wine industry too, is you meet people that you would never have met otherwise, you know, they live across the country. Um, but you form a real connection with them because they're people who care about a lot of the same things that you do. Because again, you don't get into the wine industry because you want to make um, $10 million or because you want to, you know, rule the world. You get into the wine industry because whether you're a writer or a psalm or a winemaker, you love history, you love the earth, and, you know, you love telling some sort of story. You've mentioned that aspect of wine a couple of times, and it's something that's, that's a, that comes up a lot in our conversations, too. The idea of wine as, as politics and as history and as geography and as religion and, and all of that. When you, that that's kind of a daunting task to write about something like that, to have so many different regions and have it be so, so meaningful to so many different places in so many different ways. So I'm curious how you approach that as a writer. How, how do you make that manageable for yourself and your readers when you're dealing with this product that is so many things to so many people? How do you simplify it down and make it so that you can understand it and so that your readers can understand it? I often just take a tiny little slice of of a story. So if I'm writing about clones, for example, and different choices that people make with clones, it's so small that I can talk about a lot of different things, farming practices, regions, um, terroir, um, climate change, but it's on such a small little tiny micro subject that it doesn't get out of control. So I think that that's the key. And that those are the stories that my editors tend to like more than the really broad. I mean, that's that's another piece of advice that I would give to writers is um, pick a very small slice of the wine industry and tell that little story because you can talk about a lot of things with a little. So we talked earlier about, about social media and obviously you have a, a fairly large following on Instagram. You're, you're, I would consider a wine, a wine influencer on Instagram. Tell me about that, that path of, of growing, growing yourself and your brand on Instagram and, and what it means to you to have that many people who follow you and read you regularly. Um, I made a choice early on to only, I mean, primarily there are definitely um, exceptions, but only share pictures of wine and um, not myself because I feel like, and I, there are so many followers, people that I follow that I love who do pictures of themselves and the wine. To me, that is a much bigger commitment for, for several reasons. Um, you have to kind of be um, first of all, you have to like look normal and put on lipstick, which isn't always what I feel like doing. Um, and sometimes, and it just is the focus on the wine. And, um, my daughter, as I've mentioned 8 million times, I have twins, um, a boy and a girl. And my daughter is actually very, very interested in photography. 
So one of the ways that we kind of bond and just hang out is by um, taking pictures together. So she will help me um, set up the shots and we'll talk about it. And so it becomes kind of like a family project, um, which is, which is fun. And it's a, it's a creative outlet. So um, that's really what it's about. And it's interesting because I discovered fairly early on in my journey, a lot of people don't follow back. So, you know, you'll see someone with 10,000 followers and they're only following 100 people. But I follow almost, you reach a limit at 7,500, which I didn't realize until I reached it. And I was like, I can't follow anyone else because I genuinely love following so many people. It's like, I learned so much. It's like having um, wine education, you know, for free, basically is, is, and it's a community and I've met so many people through Instagram who I'm now friends with. It's, I mean, I've met them in real life. We've become friends and we've worked on things together. And so that has been, Instagram has been a great thing in my life. And I know that a lot of people find it very toxic. Um, But I think that because I took myself out of the equation, that made it a little bit easier for me. And also just because I don't, I didn't think about it as like, I've got to have, I'm only going to follow 50 people or whatever. Like to me, it's, it's really, I think of it as kind of a community effort thing. And I, you know, I genuinely enjoy following thousands of people. With that many people following you and reading you, uh, especially as you're writing about topics that can be controversial, tell me about feedback you get. Uh, do you get a lot of feedback that that pushes you, that challenges you? Do you get a lot of feedback that just kind of annoys you? Like, what 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 is it like being you and writing a story, and then the kind of after effect of that? I've developed a much thicker skin over the years. That's, I mean, I what I don't, I don't care if people get mad. I mean, I care, obviously. If people get mad, that's a lot less upsetting to me. I've upset people on a few occasions, and I find that very difficult to deal with because I don't like hurting people's feelings. And occasionally, you're going to write things that are going to just push people's buttons in the wrong way, and that is the thing that I struggle with. If people send me nasty emails or write nasty comments, I just kind of brush it off because it that's just part of that's part of the gig. Um, and you can't, I, I don't see how you could be a writer and get upset by, you know, angering people. Cause I, I think you'd go crazy. Um, so that I've, I've definitely, I mean, that took a while. Um, but mostly every, maybe twice a year, I'll hurt someone's feelings and they'll reach out and, you know, I do whatever I can to, to correct that. So, um, that's, that's the one thing that, that bothers me, but mostly I feel like if people are upset and, um, they're talking about it a lot, then it's probably something that we should all be talking about. So I, I see that as a positive. Have you ever had a a topic come up that you thought was too uh, inflammatory to write about or something you felt you had to pull yourself back from? I've been really cautious. Um, I haven't stopped myself, but I've been really cautious about writing about sexual assault in the industry and Black Lives Matter because um, I think that 
that that's really, um, you know, racism. I'm white. I mean, I, I don't totally understand what it's like. I, I, I don't understand at all. I can't. Um, so that is something that I've, I've been very cautious about. Um, sexual assault is obviously, I mean, I've only written one story that involved that and I was very nervous about it. Um, because it's such a personal issue. Um, but I, I feel like part of my job as a writer, and I'm not writing for the New Yorker, I'm not writing about Abu Ghraib, but occasionally serious topics have to come up. And I think it's important to cover them. So, so take us through what a, what a typical day looks like for you uh, writing independently. What, what's, what's a typical day in your life or week in your life? Um, well, I try to work Sunday through um, Thursday and Friday. I take kind of like a half day. Um, but and so I'd say that Sunday and Thursday are kind of half days. So typically I get up first thing. I look at the news. I see what's happening. I go for a run. I come upstairs because uh, I go for a run on a treadmill because upstate New York, it's like really not fun to run outside half of the year at least. And then I feed the kids. Um, my husband and I split the days where we get them on the bus. Um, and then I just, I sit down and I write and I research. I talk to people. Usually I try to do most of my interviews Monday through Wednesday in the mornings. And I try to do my like most serious writing first thing in the morning. And then I'll do editing and research in the afternoons. Um, and then, you know, sometimes things will come up and I'll have phone calls later in the day because, you know, different time, um, as you know, different time zones that present challenges. And then usually Zoom calls are thrown in there and then just life stuff, you know, I'll, I'll have to take one of the kids to an appointment or go on a meeting. Um, but I try to really keep my work, I'd say, between like eight and six, you know, and often it's not, it doesn't go the full time. Um, and a lot of writing, a lot of being a writer is, is sitting there and thinking about things and reading and researching. So it's not all active, um, active writing. You've talked a couple times about some of the challenges you you face. What 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 would you say is the biggest challenge for you being an independent writer? What's what's the biggest challenge you face? Not having enough assignments. I'm always worried about the next assignment. Um, I'm always worried that you know another assignment isn't going to come in from X, Y, or Z. So that's the biggest challenge, and everyone's going through it. Um, and this has been with COVID. It's been very challenging. Um, a lot of people have, you know, publications have changed, um, editors have left, come and gone. And, you know, when you find an editor that you really like working with and they leave, it's, it's hard because you don't know if you're going to connect with the next editor. Um, so that's, that's the biggest concern. And then also, if I didn't have my husband to rely on for health insurance, that would be huge. It would be huge. I, I might even have to get a job 
um, that offered health insurance and just freelance on the side. I mean, that's just the reality when you have kids, it's, you know, it's really challenging. about your family quite a bit and that's and and it's 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 enjoyable to think of you trying to run around and do this job with with a pair of twins running around the house i have to say but uh i'm, I'm curious about that about uh we, we talk to women in the industry a lot about the balancing family work life uh mostly we're talking about talking to winemakers generally but it, it applies here as well i'm curious about that balance for you uh, and how it's gone we've talked about it a little bit already but sort of how it's gone for you and how you found a way to make it work doing doing both well, I'm, I'm lucky to be married to someone who is very, a very hands-on parent. Um, Steven really wants to be an active parent. Um, and so we, we really do double duty. Um, he is very involved. He takes the kids to half of their appointments. I take them to the other half. He, um, and you know, it's not like rigorous, but that's just the way it is. Like we know, and he knows and there are certain things that I'm better at than, and he's better at. Like I often am the one who talks to all the teachers, sets up the play dates, whereas he's the one who really institutes rules about cleaning and makes sure everything is done perfectly. And um, so we both have our little areas that we're obsessed with and focus on, but it's really equal. Um, and I know that a lot of a lot of partners don't have that, but my husband he's much better at um, like housework than I am. I mean, much better, like significantly better. He's like, do you see that on the ground? I'm like, no, I, I don't even see it. And like, so he's very hands-on. And when I travel, he's all in. And my mom, my parents are very involved too. They live close by, so they help out. Um, but when I travel for work, it's not a problem. And I know that that's not the case for a lot of, a lot of women. So I'm, I'm lucky. But that's something that you, that you also, that's a choice. You have to, I mean, you fall in love with who you fall in love with, but you have to think about the implications um, and the, you know, who you're going to choose to partner with is, is if you're going to have kids, you have to think about that if you want to work. And I think it's important. Um, you know, very few people can have a one person income these days, if you have kids, especially. So we've talked about the pandemic, of course, a little bit already. I want to talk about it from a couple of different angles for you. I want to talk about, first of all, talk about it personally. How, how has it affected your life, your work life the, this year? Uh, and, and, and how do you see, are, are there changes or things you've implemented this year that you see staying? And, and what are you most looking forward to getting back to? I'm without a doubt looking back, looking forward to getting back on the road. I really miss travel. That's been huge. However... It has also been wonderful spending so much time at home. And definitely, there are definitely things that I will take out of this. Um, I will not travel just to travel. It's going to have to be a really good trip that I'm going to learn a lot from. Um, and the kids and I have, I would say, become closer during this process. And they have seen me working the whole time and they get it. You know, they're eight years old. They will sometimes be in um, the office with me working, um, but they will have things that they're working on and they know that they can't, you know, blast music or chat the whole time. Um, so in some ways they become kind of coworkers and 
you know, they'll, my, my son will be like drawing comic books and my daughter will be doing jewelry design and, you know, drawing and reading. And, um, so we all kind of work together, um, which I'm definitely going to take out of this. And we've come up with a lot of new family traditions. Um, family dinner has become very important. Um, game night are, is very important. Um, so I think that talking to children, not like they're adults, but like they can understand big things because they can, is something I will take out of this. They get it. And, and obviously with, with travel taken away, you have a lot more interactions like this. Tell me how that has changed your work, uh, talking to people on the phone and via Zoom almost exclusively now. And is it better, worse, different? Is it something you int intend to continue to do again as, as travel restrictions are, are lifted? I definitely will do a lot of Zooming because they're just, they're, again, I can't make every trip work. I don't want to make every trip work, but I do want to speak to winemakers all over the world and um, learn about kind of what they're doing. I, I've loved, I've loved all the Zooms and I've, I've again, made some friends through Zoom, which is wonderful. Um, and you just get to also, I get to see my colleagues more because I'm in Saratoga Springs, upstate New York. So a lot of my colleagues in New York are going to all these events all the time, going to lunches, going to dinners that I, I can't go to. I mean, I can't take the day to go to New York city. Um, so I've, I've been able to kind of talk to a lot of my colleagues more than I ever would have been able to. So it's, it's, I've really enjoyed it. So the, let's talk about the pandemic then on, on the industry level. What, what, what have you seen from COVID, how it's affected the industry, the American wine industry this year? What are some of the biggest impacts you've seen and, and what does it change about maybe your view of the future for, for wine and a domestic wine? Well, I have really seen it impact the smaller cult wineries. The really like the really interesting wineries because they don't have the manpower to launch these, you know, they don't have PR departments reaching out and setting up Zoom calls necessarily. I mean, some of them do. Um, they don't have the household name power. And I mean, I think especially in the beginning of the pandemic, people wanted comfort. So they wanted the familiar, they were eating Oreos, and they were drinking the version of Oreos. And you saw those sales like going through the roof. And then, you know, these really wonderful winemakers who have, you know, 2000 cases a year were just struggling, they couldn't get their wine out the door. They couldn't get to distributors or they depended and everyone had to change on a dime. They had to get their wines out to different distributors in a different way. They had to find. And the other thing, um, Esther Mobley wrote this brilliant piece for um, San Francisco. And she wrote about the Chronicle, I think. I'm almost positive. She wrote basically about how consumers have no clue how much these wineries spend on mailing their wine to people. And that is huge. I mean, and it varies. If you're going to mail wine to Alaska, it's very different than mailing wine to Connecticut. And people expect, you know, they expect free shipping because of Amazon. 
So, or they expect to pay like a dollar because these big wineries can make big deals with FedEx and UPS and all these other carriers and different distribution networks so that they can get cheaper, cheaper shipping. So it's been really hard for the smaller wineries. And I just think the more we can tell that story, the better off the future will be for these winemakers. And I don't know, you know, I've thought about all kinds of things. Like what if different wine clubs, you know, just, but it's, it's really, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough nut to crack. Obviously you mentioned sort of creativity and flexibility has been kind of the, kind of the watchword of 2020, I think, and the ability to pivot. Are, are there things you've seen, uh, places you've seen who have done impressive work this year at, at pivoting and at, at having creative problem solving uh, to sell their wine or to, to, to stay afloat? Um, I think that in Oregon, there's been a lot of really interesting pivots. Like um, they've done different, they've done different um, seminars in groups that are just centered on like McMinnville and maybe they'll bring in restaurants and a few breweries too. Um, that's really interesting. Brooks winery, um, you know, what the work that they do is also, they've really engaged um, online with zoom um, Adelsheim, they've done some really interesting things. Um, I would say that, and you know, there other, and Oregon, the thing about Oregon that's so great is the boards really support. So they'll do a lot of reach outs and a lot of organizations. And if I have a question and I reach out to Sally Murdoch, she has the answer within 12 hours, which is not the case in most places. And she has like 20 different people that she can set up with, you know, for interviews. She's got statistics. She's got data. So having the right people pushing out the message is huge. And I think it's a game changer for, for, I mean, everyone, I hope everyone appreciates Sally because she, she really does so much for wineries all over the state. So what would you say is your, is your, your greatest strength and how has it helped your success as a, as a writer? Curiosity, without a doubt, is just always wanting to know more. And that, I mean, I'm always willing and ready to ask more questions, to read more, to listen to more, um, and to just figure it out. I'm, because I'm genuinely curious. I think that's so important for a writer. It's the most important, probably, in my opinion. And you have to have, you have to develop a thick skin, but you can develop that. I wasn't born with a thick skin. And you can also, um, you can work on your writing skills. But if, you, if you're not curious, forget it. You've talked a couple of times today about sort of advice you have for young writers. Is there a, is there a kind of, are there kind of go-to advice, ad, advices you have for people who come to you and, and want to do what you're doing? Um, I'd say be willing to write for free in the beginning and pitch relentlessly and don't be afraid to ask, ask questions or, or to pitch. I think that there's like there's kind of a, a shyness um, that people have about um, pitching and reaching out to a contact and saying, hey, you know, could you connect me with this person or that person? 
um, you know, I, I would say don't be a nudge, but people want to help, especially in this industry. People love to help. People want to, and that's the other thing that I would say um, that I really appreciate from winemakers is they love teaching people. They love teaching people and they don't make you feel like an idiot if you don't know. And there's a lot, again, that you're, no one, I mean, no one can know everything. So, and you never need to feel silly for asking a question. Um, so those are, those are definitely things that I would say is use your connections. Think about people who could introduce you to someone and just pitch. And, you know, you might have to write, you might have to have another job and write for free for a little while. So as you, as you look for the future for yourself and for your work, what, what do you see? What do you hope for the next, say, five, 10 years of, of, your, of your life and your, and your writing career? I, the thing that I would like more of is stability, is more regularity and more predictability. And that is very, that's a tough call in this industry. So I'm still trying to figure out how to make that happen. But those are my goals. If I could just do what I do with a little more stability, I'd be very happy. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Seriously. Uh We've talked about we've talked about at length about Oregon today. I'm I'm curious. Uh, what do you see for the next five ten years in the Oregon wine industry? What are some um, some trends or some um, challenges on the horizon? Um, the biggest things that I see happening is um, a greater interest in non Pinot Noir because I mean Pinot Noir is amazing, but there's a lot of other grapes that are doing very well in Oregon. I love I'd love to see some more Gamay. I mean, I just can't believe how good the gamets are that I've tried um, and sparklers. It's just, it's really the champagne method of sparkling wine is just doing great things. And um, I would look, I expect continued collaboration between winemakers um, and that's always encouraging. And I will definitely be looking. I don't know what the plan is for the auction um, the Willamette Valley auction next year, but I'll definitely be um, looking at that and also looking at some of the um, educational seminars that are happening because I think that that is the best way that, that winemakers have of teaching each other and reaching out to each other and also um, bringing in kind of the next young generation. I can't wait to see what what happens and I can't wait and we've talked um, before in the past about the increased emphasis on diversity so I'll be very curious to see how that plays out in the next five to ten years I got one more question for you we're going to end a little philosophical uh, what in your opinion is the role of wine in society I in ideally I think it should be a way to connect people to each other, to history, to places. I mean, nothing will bring back a memory like a glass of wine that I tried on a vacation with my friends and my family or with coworkers. Um, it connects you to generations past too. I mean, it, and it's, it's a work of art. And I think that wine should be a reflection of the winemaker's ideals and really 
their best ideals. Um, and that means, you know, everything from the way that they farm the fields to the way to the choices they make with in the cellar, what they add to the wine um, and the people that they employ in the process. And one thing that I see really needing work across the board is the way that we treat workers across the board, but especially in the field, because, you know, we couldn't make great wine without having great people. So I think we have to treat them and we have to figure out the health insurance issue for, for vineyard workers, I think. All right. So all the questions that I have for you, is there anything I didn't ask or anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? No, I, I, I think we covered it and I really appreciate it. I love what you guys do. I think you're doing so much for the industry and so much for the next generation. And I'm just so excited to see where you guys take everything. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. And thank you so much for your time today and for your stories and answers. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.